Jesus is risen. Well, he is risen indeed. You can say that would be the classic Anglican response. Yeah, okay, let's do it properly. He is risen. He is risen risen indeed, that's right. And that is what we are celebrating uh, this afternoon, this evening, that on the first Easter Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the grave never to die again. And we make a very big deal about that as Christians. But strangely enough, even though we care a great deal about the fact that Jesus is raised, I found for myself as a Christian, I found myself quite unsure, especially when I'm asked by others about the resurrection of Jesus, why is it so important that Jesus was raised that first Easter morning? Why is it so important? Is it, is it really nothing more than a powerful ending to the story of Jesus' life? As if Steven Spielberg was brought in to finish the gospel on a high note after the darkness of the cross. You know, sadly, many members of the worldwide church today, even many pastors would say, well, we don't really believe in a, a historical resurrection of Jesus, that he actually rose from the dead. It's, it's not that important. And they speak of the resurrection as something that maybe God, you know, caused for the disciples to experience like a vision or a feeling in their hearts. Uh, not, not a historical event for our world, but just something to encourage them. Jesus didn't really come back from the dead, surely. Why is it that the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus is so important that we are celebrating it this evening at Smack as a historical event all these years on? Well, John a close disciple of Jesus, whose resurrection account we are looking at tonight, to him the physical resurrection of Jesus is both true, it happened, and it is incredibly important for our lives today. In fact, when John's describing why he wrote this testimony to Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, what we have in our Bibles, John's Gospel, uh, he writes a bit later in the chapter that we're looking at tonight. If you look in the, be on the screen and have a look a little bit later. John 20, verse 30. And John writes, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The resurrection was the greatest sign that Jesus ever did for us, his world. And John's given us this account, this testimony to it, so that as far as he is concerned, we might know who Jesus truly is as the Christ, God's King, as the Son of God, and that believing on him, we might have life in his name. As far as John is concerned, understanding and appreciating the truth of Jesus' resurrection, it's a matter of life or death. Now, that alone should make it worthy of our consideration tonight. We're going to work through this short account in these 18 verses in John 20, but I want us to have these two questions in the back of our minds as we do. What is the evidence that John is presenting to us for Jesus actually being raised from the dead as we believe? What is the evidence? And then secondly, what is the significance of it, of Jesus being raised? Why does it really matter at the end of the day? We're going to start with the empty tomb. That's where John starts his resurrection account. 
the beginning of chapter 20. Have a look at it with me. John chapter 20, verse 1, the empty tomb. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. John gives us his first witness of Jesus' empty tomb, Mary Magdalene, and she is a very helpful witness indeed, because actually if we were to flick, we don't have to flick there now, but if we were to flick to Mark's gospel in his account, uh, particularly in his account of the crucifixion, you can read on the screen, this is what he notes. Uh, There were also, I'll read from Mark 15 verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. And then later, Mark writes, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus was laid. So this Mary that John introduces to us as the first witness to the empty tomb of Jesus, she had witnessed the death and the burial of Jesus as well. She had seen the tomb in which Jesus had been laid. She had watched the huge stone being rolled back into its place to secure the tomb. She had seen the guards that had been posted there because of those rumors that were circulating that uh, his disciples in their desperation would come and steal the body. Uh, So if Mary had gone to the wrong tomb, it was very, very unlikely in the first place. But more importantly, if she had gone in to the wrong tomb, as some suppose. Mary didn't really go to the empty tomb of Jesus. She went to the wrong tomb, uh, which just happened to be empty. If that had been the case, well, the religious authorities of her day would have been very quick to take whoever was listening, along with Mary, to the right tomb, uh, and they would have taken the body of Jesus out, and the case for the resurrection of Christ would have ended there and then. But they didn't, because they couldn't. Mary knew which tomb Jesus had been laid to rest in, and she had come back to that tomb, and it was empty. And yet even her first thought isn't, great, Jesus is raised from the dead. Instead, she buys into another conspiracy theory that someone has stolen Jesus' body. You, You see what she says when she reports the empty tomb to Peter? And John, who's referred here as the disciple whom Jesus loved, just have a look halfway through verse 2. You see what she she says to the disciples. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Well, so the disciples, having heard this disturbing news from Mary, they, they sprint as fast as they can to the tomb that Easter morning. John outruns Peter, but then he hesitates at the entrance. He just peers in, and Peter catches up with him and just goes straight in and sees what Mary saw, the empty tomb. Jesus' body is gone. And yet John is at pains to make it clear that something has been left behind. He mentions it three times in this account, in verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7, Jesus' grave clothes, uh, the linen cloths that his dead body would have been wrapped in. They were just lying where the body of Jesus had been put to rest. There's probably a, a shelf that had been cut into the rock at the back of the tomb in which Jesus had been laid, and, and there the linen cloths were lying. But then John gives us this other very interesting detail in verse 7. 
and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The, the linen clothes that Jesus' body had been wrapped in were there on the shelf, but for some reason the cloth that had covered his head was then placed somewhere separately, and it was placed neatly. Now, how is that, for a start, useful, ev- useful evidence that Jesus has really been raised from the dead? Let's start ask the evidence question. Well, remember what Mary believes at this point. Jesus' body has been stolen by someone, and we need to find it as quickly as possible. Now, I imagine in a group this size, that we're gathered here tonight, at least one of us has suffered from a case of burglary in the past, or we know someone close to us who has. And so we will know that burglars and thieves that strike in the night all of a sudden, they are not known for their tidiness when they commit their crimes. They don't care about the mess that they make if they're trying to steal something. And so when I was back at uh, university back in the UK, I remember uh, my friend, uh, I just bumped into him one morning and he was really downtrodden and sad and said, mate, what's going on? I said, oh, something terrible happened yesterday. He had been just working at his desk at his home uh, at university, um, and it was a hot summer's day. It was a very warm day, so he had left the bay door, uh, the bay window of that faced out onto the street open. He was he lived in the he was kind of in the uh, on the ground floor room at the front at the front just out by the front door. So he had left the window open so the the room could remain cool. And he was just working at his desk, and he had just popped into the living room just to have a break, get a drink, get something to eat. Uh, and he heard this great commotion, and he, and he rushed back into uh, his study, and it was a complete tip. Uh, an old cup of coffee that had been sitting on the side had just gone completely across the desk, and he noticed that something was missing, and it was his laptop. I think it was his MacBook. It, was, it meant a great deal to him, and it had gone. And he rushed out the front door, and he saw this guy legging it down the street. He could see, and it was clear it was a thief who had just come in in a moment's notice, made an absolute mess, grabbed his laptop, and run for it. It was a complete tip, his room. Of course, he was sad about losing his laptop. He wasn't too bothered about having to clear up afterwards as well. Thieves, burglars, they don't care about the mess that they make. And so if Jesus' body had been stolen, well, for a start, why not just take the whole thing? Did the thieves really just wait, they slowly unwrapped Jesus' body. And we're talking about a lot of cloth here, a lot of wrapping, and it would have been a foul task to do anyway. The body had been dead for three days. Slowly unwrapped it, then take the face cloth off and place it on the stone ledge to the side separately. When all, if Mary's right, all their intention is, let's just take, the, let's just take Jesus' body and run. Well, why not take the whole thing? Now, of course, they wouldn't. Jesus is no longer in his tomb, not because his body has been stolen, but because he is risen. Jesus is alive. Now, why is that significant for us in 2016? Why is the empty tomb, and particularly the grave clothes that remain, and this headcloth to the side, uh, why, why does that matter? Well, friends, it should matter to us because one day we are all going to die. One day we're all going to die. Hopefully not anytime soon. I'm not wishing death upon you tonight. But sooner or later, we will die. The Americans, they have a saying, speaking of something that they're absolutely sure is going to happen. It's as certain as death 
and taxes. Death is certain. So certain they can use that saying. It is as certain as death and taxes. One particular American, Steve Jobs, who we may well know was the CEO and the founder of Apple Computing until his own death in 2011. Well, in the years leading up to his death, he had opportunities to do public talks and lectures on university campuses in America. And during one of those talks, he said some pretty interesting things about his personal views of death. This is what Steve Jobs had to say. Let me read it. In one of his uh, speeches, he said, death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it, and that is as it should be, because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Now, with due respect to Steve Jobs, I have to disagree with him on two points here. Firstly, well, Steve says that death is very likely the single best invention of life as life's change agent. And I think we here in Malaysian society, we have a much more sensible view of death. We generally don't see it as a very positive thing at all, do we? In fact, we go to some serious lengths just to put it out of our uh, eyes view and out of our minds and out of our hearts, the fact that one day we will die. That's why you go into some random elevator, as I was this morning, one of the high-rises in KL, and I'm looking for floor 4 or floor 14 or floor 24. It's very puzzling for a foreigner who just comes across for the first time. And instead, it's floor 3A or or 13A or 23A because the number 4, the locals, we we know, it stands... It sounds like the word death in Chinese, the number four in Chinese. That's how far Malaysian society likes to go to try and get the idea of death out of our hearts and minds. I don't even want to press a number that might be associated with death and go to that floor that might be associated with death at all. We are pretty, pretty good at avoiding it. Well, friends, I think that's, that's healthy on one level because the Bible tells us we're right to fear death. We are right to fear death. It speaks of death as our greatest enemy. The one enemy that no one can escape, no matter how hard they try. And the Bible also teaches us that death, as much as Steve Jobs might want to think differently, death is not a natural part of life. It it wasn't part of God's original creation. No, death is a curse that's come into our world that affects us universally as humanity now as the penalty that we face for turning away from our Creator and Lord, for refusing to honor and submit to Him as we should, finding our worth in His glory, and instead deciding we will become the rulers of our own lives. And so we deny God as our God. That causes all kinds of problems in our world. We were never made to run the world apart from God. And so we fail to love and honor others on a personal level and on the level of society. But most seriously, sin cuts us off from the God that created us for life with him above all. It prevents us, actually, as we willfully go along in sin, from giving God the glory that he is due, the undivided loyalty of our hearts, our minds, and wills, that really belong to him. And so Hebrews 9, 27, these sobering words, man is destined to die once and then face judgment. 
not be reincarnated as something else, not ceasing to exist in every sense, man is destined to die once and then face judgment. And actually, Jesus spoke of the reality of judgment and hell in the Bible more than any other person. That God, in his justice and love, will, he cares about what goes on in his world. He will deal with every crime that is committed, but that means he will deal with the greatest crime, that of our sin as humanity in rebelling against him. And so death is something worth fearing. For those who die guilty of sin, it is the door to God's judgment and to his condemnation. And yet it is exactly as we take on board that sobering and hard truth that the resurrection of Christ truly becomes amazing news. And this is the second point where I have to respectfully disagree with Steve Jobs. He said in that speech, no one has ever escaped death, and that is as it should be. Yeah, again, the resurrection speaks against that. It declares that Jesus himself overcame death in his body in a way that no one ever has. Now, Jesus did raise people from the dead during his ministry. Those of us who are familiar with John's gospel will know that. Uh, We remember John 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, commands Lazarus to come out of the tomb after he'd been dead for four days, and, and Lazarus did stumble out alive. But John makes it clear even that picture of resurrection is is actually very different from the resurrection we see in Jesus. See what John tells us in John 11.44, speaking of Lazarus' resurrection, the man who died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Oh, Lazarus lived again, yes, and, and he came out of his tomb, yes, but he came in the clothes, the linen cloths in which he had died. If Lazarus had starred in a James Bond film, then his title would have been You Only Live Twice (laughs) or Die Another Day. He was alive again, but he would only live to die again in the end. And that is why the grave clothes of Jesus found in the empty tomb are so important. They show us that Jesus not only rose to live again, but he rose never to die again. Earlier we had Psalm 16 read to us. That was written by David, king of Israel, who were God's people before the coming of Jesus. And David wrote in that psalm, when speaking of God's faithfulness to him and as his king, in Psalm 16 verse 10, it's on the screen, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You will not let your Holy One, your anointed one, see corruption. And we know that David isn't the Holy One he speaks of here because David died and saw corruption. He died a normal death. He was buried and his body wasted away in the grave. But God promised that one day he would establish a king from David's line who would be different whose reign would never end. Nothing, not even death, would prevent him from ruling. The king for whom God would bring peace and security to our world lost in sin. Well, Jesus is the Son of God who took on flesh for us, born of the line of David, 
His resurrection testifies to us. He is the Christ. He is the promised Savior and King from David's line. He lived that life of love for God and love for our fellow man, that life sinless that we have failed to live. And yet then he went to the cross, what we remembered on Good Friday, where he took our every stripe for our every sin on himself. It was no normal death. Jesus said, that, said as much as that before he died. John 12, 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Because rather than dying as a result of his own sins, he went to the cross to draw others to himself to pay for their sins. And that is how God's King in Jesus saves us, by laying down his life, his very life, for us. And because he had no sin of his own Death could not hold him. God's Holy One did not see corruption. Instead, he conquered death for our sakes in his own body, rising again to glorious new life, which is what he had promised to his disciples. Before raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus was speaking with Lazarus' sister, Martha. And of course, Martha loved her brother, Lazarus, dearly, and she was so upset, and she, she ran to Jesus and cried to him, If only you had been here before Lazarus had died, you could have kept him alive. What did Jesus say? Did he say, oh, I'm sorry? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Friends, death is the greatest enemy we will ever face. But because Jesus rose... We know death has been defeated for all who trust in him. And so instead in him, we have the guarantee of life beyond death. The life that we see in Christ, risen from the grave. Now that's the kind of rescue we need. We need to be saved, not so much from the reality of physical death that we will all endure one day, but of what follows. The possibility of being condemned by God for our sin living under his judgment. Jesus alone is the one who gives us that rescue because he alone died our death and conquered the grave in his own body so that in him we can have the promise of new life on the other side of death. And it's that new life that Jesus speaks of as people start to meet the risen Jesus as John records it for us. So let's look at that in John 20, carrying on. From verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The disciples go back from the empty tomb, but Mary sticks around. She is weeping outside the tomb, and eventually she, she draws up the courage and she peers inside and she witnesses another incredible sight. We have it in verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have left him. It might be that Mary hasn't seen the burial clothes in the tomb. Uh, There was the slightly distracting sight of the two angels now sitting there in front of her. And so she simply repeats her cry of distress. They've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've taken him. And yet before that they can respond Mary turns around, she senses someone behind her, and John tells us clear as day, 
it's Jesus. Only Mary doesn't recognize him. There's something different about him that keeps her from recognizing him at first. Jesus asks her, woman, who are you looking for? And Mary just assumes that the man standing before her is the gardener. He would have been around at that time of day, around the tombs. Where have they taken Jesus? She asks this man. And at that very moment, the shroud covering her eyes that would have prevented her from seeing who this man was, it it falls away when Jesus calls her by name, Mary. And immediately she sees her Lord, who had been crucified only a few days before, now risen alive before her very eyes. And she cries out, Rabboni. It's addressing him respectfully as her teacher, fearfully as her teacher as well. Having seen Jesus in the flesh and spoken with him, she leaves. Verse 18, Mary went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Again, Mary is not only the first eyewitness of the empty tomb, John presents to us, but the first eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus himself. And through her testimony... And Jesus appearing later to his disciples, they also believed, as we had read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. Jesus appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Oh, Mary was the first, but she wasn't the only one. The resurrection, it wasn't an illusion. Jesus having risen was seen by groups of people at the same time. And most of those people could verify their witness before they, while they were still alive. And so if you're reading John's gospel back then, and you're reading that letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, many of them are still alive. You could go and say, did you really see there isn't Jesus? Yes, we did. We saw him with our own eyes. And all but one of the disciples gave their lives testifying to the fact that they saw the risen Lord Jesus. It was the foundation of their faith. And they gave their very lives testifying for it. Now, it it is sadly all too common to see people giving their lives for a lie that they believe to be true. But it's extraordinary for anyone to give their life for someone that they would know to be a lie. No, the disciples knew Jesus had risen because they had seen him. And they gave their lives testifying to it. Again, the evidence points conclusively to the fact Jesus is alive. But then the significance of it, look at the words that Jesus speaks to Mary, having appeared to her in the garden. It gives us another window into why this is so important. Just look in verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God. And your God. Now there are several theories as to why Jesus doesn't cling to, uh, doesn't let Mary cling to him at this point. It it might be that he's concerned about appropriate intimacy. Mary's emotionally fragile at this point, and they're alone in the garden together. And so Jesus tells Mary, "Don't touch me at this time." But once he's ascended to the Father, well, she would receive the Spirit and enjoy close communion with her Lord through Him. Others have suggested Jesus is telling Mary not to cling on to him because he's not leaving yet. I have not yet ascended to the Father. There is going to be further opportunity to enjoy fellowship with me before I leave. Now, both of those interpretations are possible, but we are going to focus 
on the words that Jesus says straight after. He says to Mary, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. That's what he wants Mary to take to the disciples. Now, years ago, myself, my wife, Melissa, we were very excited when we got our first brand new car. Of course, we were very excited. It was quite an upgrade for me. Despite my affection for my 20-year-old Toyota Corolla I've been driving all that time, you know, I soon got used to having a new car, you know, one where you press the button and the aircon actually worked, helpful in Malaysia, one where the windows didn't fall down of their own accord, useful when you're doing 130 kilometers an hour on the highway, 110, sorry, of course, 110 kilometers an hour on the highway, Freud in the slip there. Well, having just received the new uh, car, I clearly did something very stupid. I wasn't speeding, believe me. And I didn't crash it. No, I pulled up into a fuel station, as of course you would if you had a car, and I came very close to doing this. If we just go to the next photo. Now, I had a, uh, those who know, uh, I had a, uh, what is it, uh, Proton Persona. There, there is no diesel Proton Persona. There is only a petrol Proton Persona, and yet I foolishly nearly decided to fill the tank with diesel fuel. Now, if we have any mechanics here, or people who basically understand what not to do with a petrol car, you'll know that kind of up at nearly at number one is don't put diesel into a petrol gas tank, unless you want a very large mechanics bill, because he'll tell you, yep, here's the state of your engine. You can either pay for us to refurbish it, or more likely we'll have to replace it anyway. Petrol cars do not run on diesel fuel. They do not mix well at all. I'm very thankful I didn't make that error in the end. Well, simply because petrol cars are not made to run on diesel. Friends, we are not made to live in sin. We were made for loving relationship with the God who gave us life. And so no matter what dreams we achieve in this life, no matter what pleasures we might experience that this world offers, no matter what ambitions we and others devote our lives to that this world aspires to, we will not find true and lasting rest in those things simply because we were made for someone bigger and far better. We were made to be children of the living God to know him, to serve him, to delight in him and have every one of our needs ultimately met in him. And yet, friends, as humanity, we have exchanged that wonderful life of blessing for a lie. And we have taken, I know I have taken the road of sin and death, rejected God as my God, pretended I'm on the throne and I'm in charge, I'm calling the shots. But that doesn't change the fact that God made me, made you, made all of us to enjoy him above everything else. You know, just like petrol cars are made to run on petrol and nothing else, well, we were made to know and enjoy God. And we will not find true rest until we find our rest in him. And that, again, is why the resurrection is such good news for us tonight. It's the proof that God in his love has acted of his own accord to restore that relationship we so desperately need that we have broken in our sin.
You see what Jesus says to Mary here as she meets him, what he, she, he wants Mary to take back to disciples. I am ascending to my Father and your Father. I am ascending to my God and your God. See, when Jesus died at the cross, he didn't just pay for our sin. He just didn't just deal with wrongdoing. He came that we might receive something in the place of our sin. His righteous, acceptable life before God that we so desperately need. So that now we can have the hope of unhindered relationship with him. No other religious leader has ever claimed that they themselves are the way to God. Whether it be Buddha or Gandhi or Muhammad or whoever else, they claim to, here are some rules, here's a to-do list and do it to the best of your ability and then you might be okay with God at the end of the day. And Jesus alone, John 14, 6, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And his resurrection is the ultimate proof, the statement from God that Jesus is his son and had the authority to say that, that he alone can reconcile us to God as our heavenly Father so that we can know peace with him now and forevermore, so that we can dwell in his presence securely rather than face what we deserve for our sin. We can look forward to a better, glorious future in a place where there'll be no more suffering and pain and death that we're so familiar with in this world today. Those things will be a thing of the past. The old order of things will have passed away because we will be restored to the God that we were made to know living under his blessing. And I wonder how many in this room for us tonight, how many of us will be there? How many of us will know the promised peace that Christ alone offers by his death and his resurrection? See, that is the truth. That is the bottom line, that Easter Sunday is worth celebrating if we've recognized Jesus for who he is. It is not automatic. We must decide, will we surrender our lives to him as God's Savior and King for us and have life in his name, which is better by far. Jesus is a better master than sin will ever be. He offers us forgiveness and new life with God in the place of sin, death, and certain judgments. You know, one day we're all going to be raised like Christ. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead means we will be raised too. We're all going to be brought to account for the ways in which we've lived before God. And so I plead with you, do not wait until that day when you must face Jesus as your judge. Receive him now as your Savior and your risen Lord today if you have not done so. He alone, by his blood, And his resurrection, he alone who has conquered sin and death, can offer us that salvation. Only we need to receive it. We need to bow the knee to him. Receive him as our savior and our king. And for those of us who have done that, friends, be encouraged above all today that your sins are dealt with because Jesus is raised, that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, not even death itself, let alone any other storm in this life that we will face. Oh, we will die one day, yes, but if our trust is in Christ, these words are true, 
that Jesus spoke to Martha, though one day you will die, yet you will live. If your trust is in me, because Jesus is raised. And so if that is you tonight, resolve to continue living for him as your Lord of life, serving him, delighting in him, prizing him. What could we give in exchange for the eternal life that he grants to us all who will trust on and serve him to their day's end? Friends, we have the words of eternal life. So as we delight in this word tonight, as we rejoice and we celebrate, what should our concern be? Who are we going to invite on Thursday to hear the evidence for the resurrection? This is good news that we need to make known to our city and to our world that we have a Savior and a King that can save us from death and eternal judgment and bring us instead into the goodness of God's kingdom for His glory. How many are we going to invite to hear the evidence for the resurrection that our brother's going to be running on Thursday nights? How many are we going to invite next Sunday as we continue to rejoice in the resurrection of Christ and pray that others would do the same. We know the gospel is true. We know it has the power to save, to bring hope of life to those living in the shadow of death. Why do we know that? Because Jesus is raised. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did indeed raise your Son to new and everlasting life, just as he promised on the third day, having borne the cross, the agony of bearing the sins of our world, that we might have the hope of forgiveness, a new life with you now and forevermore. What grace. Father, I pray for each of us tonight that we would be those who trust your word, who do not despise your great grace. We will be those who are living and rejoicing in Jesus as our Savior and King. And in the light of this great salvation, we will be those so burdened to be taking it out and making it known in this city, in this world. Help us to be making the most of every opportunity we have to be declaring the good news that Christ crucified is raised, and in him you and your great love have given us the promise of eternal life. So strengthen us as your witnesses, we pray in his name. Amen.